And that idea ferments over time and, and develops into something that takes a different form in, from what it started. So by giving it the time to grow a little, sometimes it, it turns into something different, but it never would have happened unless you had the, the germ of the idea in the beginning that you let, you know, expand a little bit. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to identify which projects to abandon and which to keep, why entrepreneurship is not always about acting fast, and why they added a digital course to their product line. Before we get into our show, I want to share a strategy some businesses are using to help manage cash flow during COVID-19. They're selling gift cards. Gift cards give customers a way to support you right now. We've seen some creative ways to market them, like selling gift cards at a discount, giving special offers for customers who've redeemed them in the future, and adding free gift cards to high-value cards as a bonus. As part of Shopify's response to COVID-19, gift cards are now available on all Shopify plans. So you can start selling them right away. For more information, visit shopify.com slash gift card. Today, I'm joined by Laylee and Kevin from Superkit. Superkit designs Dreamy cat collars, cat harnesses, and accessories that cats love and really work. And it was started in 2017 and based out of London. Welcome, Laylee and Kevin. Well, thank you thank for having you. us. Yeah, so the birth of this idea really came out of a scary time for, for you. Tell us more about what happened. Oh, it was a, it was a real nightmare, actually. It was a strange way to start a business. But um, we have a cat called Lola, and she was quite young at the time. We live in London, so it, here it's fairly normal to let your cat have access to the outdoors, at least for certain parts of the day. So we, we'd let her sort of uh, go out and about, but one day she didn't come home and we were um, we were really worried about her. Not just because we were concerned about her whereabouts, but there'd been a sort of backstory where we tried to put a collar on her because we kind of knew that she should be carrying ID, uh, like at least something to say that she was kind of loved and, and had a home. Um, and she previously removed every single one that we tried to put on her. And it was, I mean, we were like burning through cash, mm. just like, and it was, it was getting so frustrating that, you know, we, we gave up. So when she went missing, we kind of knew that we'd, we'd messed up. She had no collar on, she had no ID. Um, and she was just kind of roaming the streets, um, and and we were kind of distraught cat parents, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, luckily we did we did get her back. Um, really fortunately, through a sort of a local a local group um, that we put a message out and um, and we got her back. But we kind of promised to try harder. We were sort of like, we 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 have to make it our mission uh, to get her to wear a collar, basically, and to keep it on. Yeah, and actually, it happened. It was really serendipitous at this time. Our two cats were fighting quite a bit and we'd been in touch with our um, veterinarian about ways that we could help them, or specifically help our more active cat expend her hunting energies on in play and not towards uh, her sister. And uh, the vet had recommended that we try to find natural materials and um, create sort of homemade toys out of them for, for Lola to play with. So I had loads of scraps of leather and other materials lying around. And um, so we just started experimenting mm. and our big breakthrough was when we realised that, A, it's not a dead cert that cats are going to remove their collars. They don't have to be intrinsically uncomfortable. They also don't have to kind of intrinsically be bulky in a way that can snag on things. We knew we wanted to put a safety buckle in, so that's kind of the, the tricky thing, is it should spring open in an emergency scenario. Um, but when we started using natural materials, we found that our cat was just so much more comfortable mm. in them because, you know, Scent is a really important sensory modality for cats. Mm. And um, and then we also started working with materials that were really lightweight and slimline mm. so that we could create a collar that kind of didn't have a profile on our cat's neck. So they kind of forgot it was there. It couldn't get snagged on things. And all these, after, you know, many months of experimentation. Quite different things. Yeah, yeah leather just together. seemed to come together. Yeah, we could make it strong enough, but light enough and, and flexible enough is the key thing, I think, you know, and the sensation that a cat has against its fur of the material is, is so important. Um, but I, I think we hadn't considered it enough. And, um, yeah, when we found that leather, leather stayed on, we were kind of like, well, that's great. Well, we'll make a collar out of leather then. Yeah, we sort of knew we kept our one tricky customer happy. <laughs> 
So, and, and she was tricky. Uh, so, so yeah, that was kind of how it all started. And then we, we found that other cats were just as sort of fussy about their collars as, as our cat was. And, yeah. and it went from there. And we realised it when we researched just seeing, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you get your cat to keep their collar on mm-hmm. and realised, you know, in forums and, and message groups that loads of people had the same problem mm-hmm. and that collars were almost considered semi-disposable mm-hmm. in that you'd buy a pack of five from Amazon and you'd get through them in a certain amount of time and then you just go and buy another one. It was almost like we thought that doesn't seem to make sense. They're obviously not happy. Um, so why don't we make a collar that makes them happy? Yeah. Mm. Now this this is like um in it sounds like when you first started this this development product development process is really just for yourself. Tell us more about that. Like how what how did, what's your background? How do you how are you to be able to just create a collar? It's not you know it looks simple, but I'm sure there's a lot involved in creating something that um you know that that will work. Yeah, I mean we well we we weren't really planning on it as a business when we started it. We had been looking for an alternative business um, for the two of us for quite some time. We both worked in TV um, before this. Uh, Lady was a producer uh, and I was a cameraman. Um, and and that's how we met and worked together for quite some time uh, doing that. But we'd always on the backbone, I just thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could do something ourselves? We always kind of wanted to have our own business and work together. We tried a few few different things and they hadn't really worked out um they weren't ideal um one of our early abandoned <laughs> ideas was an ice lolly business in london which obviously does not have weather it's most conducive weather. to weather but we were quite good at like abandoning maybe less good ideas quickly yeah, we tried <laughs> we tried stuff and abandoned it and we did some some of our own tv production doing sort of like small commercial stuff the internet which didn't really tick the box after doing working on quite high-end stuff we, we sort of didn't really get much satisfaction from that and and that isn't what we wanted to carry on doing anyway so this kind of came at a at a, at a nice point and i think you know, Lady realised this. Said, well, there's a, there's a market here. There's a not, there's a lot of people who are in the same position as us. Um, it's a good product. It works. Um, let's make them and and see if they sell. You know, and see if they and work for other people. And so that's how we kind of started. And a very small uh, while we were still working in TV, just as a just as a sideline, as a, as a little hobby, mm-hmm. um, making them ourselves um, uh, and selling them. Yeah, I think there's an important um, nugget that you dropped in there, which is around being able to quickly abandon projects. So, you know, given your experience now where you have projects in the past that maybe worked a little bit, fizzled out, or just lost interest in it, and then finally one that 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 did work. Tell us more about like what you saw between those two, not two really, the, all the other kind of projects that you've left in the past, and then and then Super Kid. Now, what did you see that uh, that allowed you to or kept you uh, moving forward and saying this is actually something that's worth pursuing more? Mm, I think it was a, a combination of factors. I mean, one was that that we saw some early, I think the feedback from our very early customers who are so dear to us. I mean, mm. they're still, they're still our customers and part of our community now. And they really, you know, they took a leap of faith. Mm. Um, it was important for us, I think, to run the, the business that we wanted. It had to be our business um, sort of in our own image, if you know what I mean. It had to be something that we were proud of yeah. and that we wanted to deliver a product that people really like. The purpose isn't, wasn't, just to have a business to make money it was a although it has to work it was to do something that made us happy and that made other people happy and that served a purpose and, and provided something that people needed and so I think this takes a lot of boxes yeah. that we realized that people actually really wanted this there was a need for it and and, and it worked and it made us happy yeah it made the customers happy it made the cats happy and it and it sold, so it made money as well, which made the business work. So it ticks a lot of boxes in, you know, for us. In the really early days, we would get reviews from customers and we'd kind of pinch ourselves, like, did we tell them to say that? So they would say things like, uh, you know, I got this collar and it's amazing it stayed on. And we're like, <laughs> yeah, what happened? We like seeded those thoughts in their brain. Yeah, yeah. And, but so we really realized that other people were having the same experience as us. And so that, you know, coupled with curiosity in terms of finding out like, 
well, how far can we push this? Can we like cure this problem for more cats? Really fueled us in those early days where mm. it wasn't I was not really a business. It was, you know, a hobby more than anything. But that definitely got us over the first mm. first hurdles. And I think realizing that we there was also a, a delivery system to the market in mm. that it was a worldwide issue in that cats are universal and it's, in a, it's a universal problem and the product could be shipped across the world easily mm. in that there was a big enough market of people if you looked at a worldwide way. And, you know, we were only very small, but even at the, even in the beginning, we were shipping colours all over the place. Our first order was to Australia, which mm. is extraordinary, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely want to come back around to um, that this comes with this testing of the waters and see who would buy in a bit. But I think one thing that you touched on was just around this. Um, I think, Kevin, you mentioned the business that you started had to be in your own image, something that you were proud of. And I think this is an important point about how I think there are a couple of different types of uh, you know, people that might be introduced into entrepreneurship. One is where the opportunity, where it's almost like opportunistic, like what is the maximizing for, for profit, a bottom line, or even top line. Um, but you mentioned that uh, for, for both of you, is about being happy and something that was maybe intrinsically rewarding. How do you kind of keep this top of mind these days to make sure that the the moves that you make, the decisions you make, the things you commit to for the business are um, intrinsically valuable to you that, that will keep you happy versus just an opportunity? I think it's, it's something we think about all the time. And, you know, we're always, we always remind ourselves that, you know, that was our founding principle. So, you know, in things like um, like our customer service, there's, mm. you could probably approach that in a few ways. There would be like a sort of profit or like, you know, financially driven approach where you sort of work out in the like the intersecting lines of like customer satisfaction and, and you know, return on investment in customer service and refunds, like where the perfect sweet spot is. But for us, our priority is to make people happy. So we design because that feels because that's how we mm. want to be treated. And and so we design all of our customer service protocols to uh, to achieve customer happiness, not the sort of optimal financial resolution for a request. Yeah, things I think like that. we were talking about it earlier. I think about we, we we come up with ideas, lots of ideas, and we've got short attention spans. <laughs> and there are thousands of ideas that you come up with and lots of things you can do. And I think it's the limiting of what you do. Often we we sort of think, well, let's not do that. It's overstretching ourselves. And is that really delivering, you know, anything better for the customer? And you go, well, no, not really. And then if it's not, then why do it? Yeah. You know, it, we sort of, we do limit our decisions quite often. Even on a selfish level, we we limit our, the scope of our product range, for example. There are other products that we could offer for cats, but they're not things we use ourselves. They're not things that I feel like we could advocate for with the same passion as we do our existing mm. products. So we we just don't stock them or we don't design them because it kind of it wouldn't come from the heart. That would come from a sort of a, a budgetary mm. um, decision. So yeah, it, it weaves through everything. Really. Yeah, I mean, we did we dabbled with you know selling other people's stuff, didn't we? Yeah. You know, with, with the idea of thinking, well, you know, we could do with trying to get some more revenue in. So maybe we should just stock other products that we that we like. And that didn't sit well with us because we. You know, it wasn't ours. We didn't weren't doing anything better than anybody else. Mm. It was just another. Um, and then to make that profitable, you then had to, you know, cut corners a little. You know, you had to you had to skin it all down to make it work. And we just, and that just didn't seem right somehow. So we we just we we abandoned that mm. and and stuck to what we what we do really. I think also in the genesis of our products, there was a point. You know, I suppose when we first started Superkit, we didn't. We, well, we never set out to be a luxury brand, but I, I think that's kind of sort of where we sit at the moment. But that was very much born of, you know, at every point where we sat down ourselves or later with a manufacturer and we had the choice of something amazing or something that was good enough. We could not, I mean, we sh- you know, there's loads of points where an accountant would say we should have made choices for the cheaper material, the faster process. But as cap owners and lovers we made the decision we'd want for our own pet and the result of that is our products are expensive it also means they last a long time Mm. but you know there's a there's an alternative business model where we made the opposite decision and probably would sell a lot more volume Mm. um and and potentially have you know a, a higher turnover but for us it's got to come 
it's got to be the decision that's right for us. I yeah, think. that comes with the with the, the people that you know out, we outsource to. We have a manufacturer now. We don't make them ourselves anymore. Mm. We have a, a manufacturer who makes them far better than we ever did. Um, <laughs> they're amazing. And we have a really good relationship with them. And um, we, we, po- we probably could go and have it made cheaper somewhere else, but our, I don't think their heart would be in it in the same way. And it's worth it to us, um, you know, to keep that manufacturer um, and just keep that quality really high. The same as the same as our fulfillment as well, in that we, we use the same fulfillment as other people. And we, we haven't got a great deal of control over it because obviously they're a large company and they just do it one way. So we supplement that ourselves to, to give the customer a, um, a better experience so that there isn't really any quibbles. If anything's wrong, we fix it. Mm. And that costs money, but but it's worth it because the customer gets a better service or gets the best service. And that's something we have to add on top of the basic service that, you know, a 3PL can give you. Mm. So I think that's yeah. pretty much it. It's, yeah, basically, I, now that we're saying it out loud, it's essentially we we design the service or the product that we think we could be proud of. And then the, the price is set around that, that's secondary to the to the initial development. Mm. So like during this this process where you are exploring other opportunities, like you mentioned, stocking other third parties or making decisions about what what to include in your scope. And you mentioned that one of the founding principles is making sure that, that you both are happy then as well as delivering um, value to the customer. Do you have like kind of guardrails in place to make sure that these things are always respected or do you just kind of uh, not bank on, but like just rely on um, your your both your intuitions that that you are saying yes to these both of these questions about your happiness and your customers' happiness. I mean, I think we 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 have oversight over all of the business, though. We're, we're constantly asking these questions, and I think it's something we really instill in our um, in our team as well. You know, when they join, we give them a a sort of manifesto which explains our kind of our core principles with the view that they'll they'll sort of bake them into their decision making as well um but we you know we're not perfect we don't always get it right but we do I think know when we've got it wrong like Mm. when we're stocking third parties it just didn't feel right and I think we kind of are uh quite receptive to those gut feelings when we have them Mm. and um and then not not we're sort of resistant to changing our minds if it doesn't yeah. feel right. We're pretty flexible in that way, aren't we? I think we chop it, you know, we're ready to make a change quite quickly if something's not working. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's something also, a skill that that um, is, is worth exploring about being kind of agile and more specifically being able to say, you know what, I invested in this, whether it be time or money, for example, using this example again of stocking third-party products, you've invested time into it, you might invest some money into it, energy into it, and then just kind of cutting your losses. I think it can be hard for a lot of entrepreneurs and just saying, you know, let me just try it out some more, stick it out some more and kind of have this like sunk cost, right, associated with the time and effort mm-hmm. you put into it. Tell us more about like maybe your thought process or like how you think about about recognizing that you have this intuition, this feeling that this is not the right thing for my business and being able to act on it. I think that's a much bigger step than just recognizing, but actually being able to act on pulling back or changing direction. Yeah, I I think a lot of that comes, it comes from us in, we're happy to have lots of ideas and we're very happy to let those ideas go. The, the kind of we, we don't so there's no pride in it if you know what I mean we don't you don't become proud of your idea and then you know stick at it belligerently and sort of keep going to make it right to make it prove I will prove that I was right because sometimes an idea comes and it's and it's a good idea and you try and guess if it just doesn't work for us it's a nice idea for somebody else yeah. you know we have that oh, a lot gosh, we yeah. always come up with things going oh should we do that and go yeah that's that's good probably for somebody else, actually, not for us. So then we'll just write it off. Or one of us will come up with an idea and the other one will cross it, cross-examine it and sort of go, not sure if that if that's going to work. And we go, yeah, okay, fair enough. And then move on. I mean, I think you, you just don't have to be too proud of your ideas. You, they come and they go, you know, and, and it's letting go of them very quickly and then go, right, that's gone. Yeah. Uh, move on with something else, you know. I think that comes... Partially, I'm, I'm sure there's other disciplines, but for us, I think that comes very much from our television backgrounds in that we worked in kind of creative industries where your ideas would be shot down all day. Mm. I mean, that's the process. And, uh, you know, 
not all of them, but you would get quite uh, used to sort of pitching things or suggesting ideas yeah. and then immediately emotionally divorcing yourself from them. So, you know, if you went home hurt yeah. at the end of every day where your ideas have been shut down, you wouldn't last a week. No. So you develop no. quite a thick skin. I think that's been useful. In the yeah, business. totally. And then you're you're ready to come up with a new idea. You go, hey, try this size and you try it on your, yeah, it didn't work. Okay, well, let's try something else. Yeah. You know, that's kind of, that's how good ideas come. Yeah. Uh, yeah. by being brave enough to be able to vocalise them and think of her and then go, oh, yeah, that's crazy. It doesn't work for us. <laughs> oh, but, you know, that, and then it's finding those diamonds in the dust, if you know what I mean. Then it's, then, yeah. then you have to be quite picky and go, yeah, that, that's got something, you know. That, and when we both agree on something and then, it, you know, we try out, you try to get it further. There's an aspect of about how they're during this brainstorming phase or very early days of an idea that there's um, a quantity that 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 matters, right? That there's a volume of ideas mm-hmm. that you discover or you present to 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 your team that 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 um, that that makes it makes a big difference. And I think there's also this um, trust that you have need to have in yourself that there will be more ideas. There's not that this is not your best idea ever, and just feel like you're stuck to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah the pot overflows you know it's constantly flowing that's the thing is that just because you, you you know it's an inexhaustible supply of new ideas and there'll always be mm-hmm. new ideas yeah, it sometimes feels like a tsunami of ideas and it's sort of like just trying to keep your head above water yeah. <laughs> the issue yeah. but also i think not just like um it's important not just to generate ideas in quantity but also to iterate on them so i I think I drive our team crazy, but I'm always saying, I just need to let that idea percolate for a bit longer. And what that really means is it just needs to like swirl mm. around my brain while I go for like runs, walks, see friends. And then, you know, it's like all the time sort of brewing away and, yeah. and we're having conversations about things. And I think that kind of iterative process where like the initial germ of an idea becomes something richer and deeper and more important, you know, more intrinsic to the business is mm. an important process. Yeah, what I'm hearing, what you're saying is that there's like a, a balance between an idea and action, right? I think there's this um, belief maybe in entrepreneurship where everything needs to be action, needs to be driving for at, at you know, 100 miles per hour or whatever the max speed you can go. Um, but I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that um, there's a kind of a timing. There's almost like a, like you mentioned, there's a, a brewing or some kind of marination phase that, that needs to play out with an idea. Yeah. yeah, and that idea ferments over time and, and develops into something that it, that, in a, that takes a different form in, from what it started. So by giving it the time to grow a little, sometimes it, it turns into something different, but it never would have happened unless you had the, the germ of the idea in the beginning that you let, you know, expand a little bit. Um, I think we, was, we were saying earlier that, you know, it's important. The things that you don't do are equally as important as the things that you do do. That's, uh, you know, in when we used to work, we worked in TV and I, people would talk about framing up shots. And I always said to people when they were saying, how do you frame up a, a, a nice shot? And you go, well, exclude everything you don't want in there. And then usually you're left with something pretty good. If you think about, well, what's good? You go, well, what isn't good? What don't you like? Is, is, is as important? So it's, it's what you leave out of the frame is, is, is more important sometimes than what you put in it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's, I think that's for us as well. What we don't do is, is more important than what we do do sometimes. Yeah. And we're so small, you know, now we're, uh, we have four people in the team and, and we don't have huge aspirations to, uh, you know, have 200 team members. So we have to be really selective. Our business manager, Becky, is always saying, you know, we don't want to be busy idiots. You don't want to like just run around doing for the sake of mm. doing. It's got to be like a co- kind of coherent journey in a set direction you know with the option to change direction yeah. if it's not working out but mm-hmm. we we have to be so selective over what we yeah. do in in so not just selective but then also selective so that you also have this breathing room or margin for for error or for margin for being able to just think about what you should be doing what about that like yeah. how do you make sure that that's because you have extra space you don't just fill it up with more things but just to have some more i don't know bound uh, boundaries or a, a wider border between what you're working on and then all the things that are asking to be worked on i mean i, I don't think we've cracked it it's the first no. thing but you know we have tried to build breathing time for instance into our year so we know that for us um, august is not a busy month for sales so we kind of try to encourage the team to take their foot off the gas in August and not start new projects, but finish off things from earlier in the year. You know, the little bits of administration that don't get done when we're all planning our Mm. next sort of 
big launch or whatever. Like tidy up at the end of the year and then September is back to school. Yeah. You know, and then that feels like, you know, into Q4 and it's all busy, busy. And and then we, and we and we make rules that we sometimes break, <laughs> but that we're not going to do make any big major decisions or do anything new until and then till till a time until say January till the new year February that's mm-hmm. when we'll we'll do something new um and I think we started we got better at that haven't we last year we kind of took on too much yeah last minute trying to rush things through and we've learned uh the hard way because it was a pretty pretty spectacular failure um <laughs> that we spent a lot of energy and money driving something forward that essentially failed lost us money and lost a lot of time whereas if we concentrated on what we did have already we would have probably done better and i think this this year we've we've learned from that and that's what we're doing and we've kind of put a line in the sand and said nothing new until spring yeah. you know and no more big ideas um with as far as products go or you know ch- major changes to products um and and we'll just concentrate for the next few months on on getting the business in good shape you know yeah keeping it on the tracks you know and building yeah. it up and driving it forward but with what you've got yeah, and I don't want to be too overly dramatic, but I could imagine that other than you two and, and the the small team you have around you, everyone else, everything else wants you to do more. So what is the, how do you make sure that that's respected? It sounds like some of it snuck through last year, but what have you learned about how to keep those boundaries? That is very apt. It did sneak through because we got overexcited and we broke, broke our own rules, but we just say no a lot don't we? Yeah. I mean, that is the reality of it. And it's really hard to do. Um, it's but... funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny what you said actually about other people wanting you to do more. And that's something that we found is that there's a lot of people in, in, in this business world that we found that, that want us to grow <laughs> too, too quickly and to be too big, if you know what I mean, too fast. And for us, that's not, not the goal. I know it doesn't sound particularly great for business, but it's not the goal. You know what I mean? And you could be pushed into doing more than you really want to. But the problem with that is it pushes the business out of the shape that you want it to be um, from outside influences. And I think we found that where there are, there are offers of funding or there, you know, there's offers of investment or offers of, um, you know, financial help from governments and, you know, of all sorts of things that you think, oh, that, that's attractive. We, yeah, we could do that. And you, and then you you look at it, you go, do we really want to do it? You know, is there, it's nice to have, you know, extra money and investment and all the rest of it, but you just think, well, actually it's not what we want to put, not the direction we want the business to go into. So, so let's not. Yeah, I think we spent a lot of time imagining sort of future super kit and mm. wondering if we would want to work there, you know, and that's yeah. kind of our temperature check for those sort of ideas. Yeah. So, so one thing that you had mentioned too was about how the biggest lesson that, or a big lesson that you learned this past year was around concentrating on what you already have. I think this is a really important point about how I think when uh, people start business for the first time, they might think about launching with you know a bunch of different products, or even if they launch with just one product line, they're quickly thinking about what's next. Tell us more about what it means for for you and your business to make sure that you are concentrating on what you already have. Yeah, I, th- I think the reason we got excited, very much like you say, is that we were looking for the next thing. You say, well, okay, well, we've done that. What's next? What else? How do we build our? How do we build up our sort of you know repertoire of products mm. without realizing that the products that we were selling already had nowhere near maxed out. Mm. You know, we really had we, because we sell worldwide. We sort of we thought right, the way to build this up is to have extra products to sell to the you know the people that have already bought something from us. Part of the our products. Are, I should, you know, our products are really well made. <laughs> they last forever. <laughs> they, they, la- they last a really long time and they don't get lost very often, yeah. which in resale values, people aren't coming back and buying collars every week, you know, and, and the harnesses, you know, last a long time. Um, so I think we thought, well, we need to have new products or, or develop new things that those people can buy. I don't think we fully realized that the potential market was much greater than we'd than we were selling to and i think that's where we changed direction and we said let's concentrate our efforts into spreading you know spreading ourselves out across a wider market and selling to more people rather than making more products and selling to the same people Mm. so i think that's where this sort of shift went it's worth mentioning that we have also 
existed at quite an interesting time in our niche because when we first started, so we've, we've talked about how collars came about, but we also sell harnesses, which were just a straight up request from our community. But it was a, it was a super niche community, mostly in America and California, a little bit in Australia, but it wasn't a big market when we created the harness. And we have grown like, you know, I don't know what chicken and egg, but like we have grown with that market. And now uh, walking with cats on harnesses is a much bigger phenomenon than it was three years ago when we developed the harness. So we've kind of also been gifted a bigger um, sort of playground for that product, which we had by no means fully exploited. So mm. I think when we developed our harnesses, we felt like, oh, it, there's probably not a very big market. We mm. need to develop something else. Sort of fast forward two, three years, I think we had this moment where we were on a, like a super uh, niche specialist Facebook, private Facebook group for people who go exploring with their cats. And we were looking at the photos and we're like, I think naively and probably uh, big headedly, we expected to see a lot of our harness and we didn't. We were like, <laughs> oh my God, there's all these cats out there. And if they don't, they're not wearing a harness. That's amazing. Like, both a shock, but also yeah, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. That one. We, we were gutted and thrilled at the same yeah. time. You know <laughs> that the, the market had suddenly like just blossomed, and that there was this whole new group of people to talk to. So that had also shaped quite a bit of our decision making. Yeah. I think. I think we were, yeah we realised it's a much bigger world than we thought it was, and that is slightly arrogant of us to think that we've <laughs> kind of where well, we sold it to everybody. Now let's make some you know, more stuff, and we'd like no. That's the problem is that when you are engaged in e-commerce, obviously you you speak to your customers and you probably speak to people on social and by email and any other way that you can. But there's a sort of um, an echo chamber effect where you don't you don't know how many people you're not speaking to um, easily. And it's hard to get a temperature check on that. So, yeah, for us, it was really eye opening, actually, Mm. just seeing that that whole market had blossomed while we had had other things on <laughs> and that's what we've been concentrating on you know and i think that's what we're concentrating on moving forward it's not developing new products but developing these new markets you know to sort of find out what you know how we how we get in touch with these people you know how we how we can talk to them because like lady says that you know it is a bit of an echo chamber it, it's it only the internet it only bounces back off what you hit mm-hmm. you know you only get a feedback off of what you're hitting you, you don't know what else you're not hitting you know so you have to go out there and kind of you know search for the for the new places uh, and that's what we're doing now. And, I, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a good yeah. move. So I think I think uh, you both summarized up like the, the answer to about what should you be doing then if you're not if you're not creating new products, which is ex- looking for new markets for the, the same product. And I think this is a a, a, a nuance like, uh, you know, veteran entrepreneurship uh, thought that, that you've had. So tell us more about like what the difference is between the effort that you might put into finding more products to sell to your existing customer base versus finding a different or larger customer base to buy your existing products? I mean, one thing that we recognized is that in the early days of uh, offering a cat harness, which you used to walk your cat, is that we we developed a product I'm really proud of. It. I, I genuinely think it's a fantastic cat harness, but over time we discovered that it is not sufficient to simply put it on your cat and then walk your cat who maybe has never been outside before out of the front door like there is a huge amount of training that has to go in and the early customers we attracted were already harness training their cats they were you know tapped into blogs and forums and community leaders and they were getting this information themselves they trained their cat they probably used another harness before us Uh, then you know they had the headaches that other people experienced and they came to us uh, so we had kind of, you know, creamed off the, the very easiest customers mm. who were just looking for the physical product. As we've expanded our reach and we're attracting customers who are just curious about mm. whether they could take their cat outside, we've discovered that it's no longer sufficient to simply offer the physical product. And then so for, I would say, a period of maybe two years, we offered and still do offer really enhanced customer support around the process of harness training and then uh, in the last year we've actually kind of taken that to the next level and um, created a course that we sell through the Shopify platform um, with through an integration with LearnWorlds and that is like a fully we we 
went back to our TV roots and we recorded like a full video um, interactive training course so that people can train their cats at home and then put the harness on them and have success. And I think that journey from just kind of having the easiest customers in the world, those lovely early customers, to going through, I would say, like a potential pain period of having to do huge amounts of education and, and actually undoing some bad training with customers where it had like not gone right to being able to formalize that into a product has been a really nice process ultimately that's interesting the the observation about how the the kind of the larger your market the more it grows beyond your kind of you know die hard core original customers is that there's just more training involved because they're just maybe less aware right less aware of the problems or the solutions that are are available so while you are creating either the customer support and definitely want to talk about the course in a bit uh, but when you're creating customer support the education that is accessible when is that most important when is it most important to introduce them to the education is it before they buy um, after they buy like when do you find that that education is most valuable I think it, it's all the way through, really. Um, we we found that at the beginning, before people buy, one of the most important things that we found was getting the correct fit for your cat. I mean, cats have all sorts of different shapes and sizes, and we make a harness that's very adaptable across three different sizes. And making that choice is really important. Um, and we really worked hard on that at the beginning because we found that people were either not having success because the harness was a bad fit, which is pretty key to a cat not being you know um, comfortable in it and, and wanting to, to walk in it um, and also then you also get a lot of returns as well so people will be returning the product and trying a different size and we realized that it was such a key thing that we put a lot of energy in before purchase um, to to educate people in why it needed to be the right fit not just think oh my cat's medium i'll get a medium mm. that you really do have to measure your cat and different dimensions and and work out which of these harnesses which of the three harnesses um you need mm. um we also a, a, massively manage people's expectations before they buy the mm. harness which seems a bit counterintuitive because it's a little bit of a downer so we do a lot of work um to kind of explain to people that you can't just like pop your cat in a harness and walk out the door and that you will have to train them. And it's not like it looks on Instagram and um, kind of set people up for success down the line. If they hear all of that and they really want to go for it, then it's like sort of the perfect fertile ground for success. So we kind of, we deliver some of that up front so that Mm. people know what they're getting into. I was going to say in the post-purchase, we follow that up with, with um, especially before the course, quite a lot of sort of detail of how to, how to put your cat into into the harness to start with and what to expect. Uh, and because you, you can be quite different when you put a cat into a harness for the first time when you put a harness on, they tend to drop to the ground quite quickly because uh, it's an unusual experience for them. And then when they do start to move, they start to do these really unusual walks, which you might think was, you know, so a lot of people would take the harness straight off again and think, right, you can't do that they don't like it um but then you realize that it's just like anything if you you start to learn to do something new you're not very good at it at first and then you just get better and better yeah so, so we take people through that process yeah. of like a kind of gradual introduction so we do that in email and then we have video content that kind of breaks out from the email there's also instructions in the you know along with the product but about kind of doing everything at the cat's pace and, and doing a sort of phased introduction. And we also offer advice about, you know, we've come up with like whole phrases for things that kind of didn't really exist before. Like we, I think, invented the concept of like a safe leash position to try and get people to understand like how to hold the leash when they're walking with their cat. So that's kind of all unpacked in email sequences mm. and in, um, in, yeah, like kind of printed materials with the harness. Mm. Yeah, okay, so that makes sense. So post-purchase, you're hitting them with, with email or or inserts with the, the package. What about um, the, when you are managing their expectations or helping them choose the right product? Where is that uh, presented? Is that on the product page? Like how do you make sure that you're guiding your customer uh, into the right product and the right expectations? Mm, I think, you know, we start that kind of like right at the, the beginning. So like very often people come to us through social. So we um, kind of, we work really hard to show the reality of of training or introductions or like uh, very modest cat walking as mm. well. So 
Although if you look at our Instagram, you'll see cats at mountains. We also sort of celebrate cats who sit on their balcony or in their back garden or just on their back doorstep and um, kind of try to manage people's expectations about what their cat will and won't achieve. And then uh, like we've got videos that um, kind of just say it straight out, like your cat might be the next canyon adventurer, but you know, they might just want to sit on the back doorstep and either is cool. So if people hear that and think, no, that's not cool with me, then they probably won't end up being, our customers but if they kind of nod along and think actually I want what's best for my cat and if mm. that's what my cat is happy with then that's that's fine by me then those are the people that will kind of our message resonates with and yeah. end up becoming our customers we, we put a lot of stuff on the product page as well it's a lot of signposting mm. uh to really really get home the idea that the that the choice is, a, is an important choice of which size you buy and I think that's been pretty fundamental we built that and we built it and we built it you know <laughs> and we kind of we started off being subtle and then we're not subtle in the slightest now we realize that the, you know that the stronger that messaging is the happier the customer is because mm-hmm. they, they don't they want a good result obviously and they also don't want to return a product and buy another one they get it right first time yeah. so it makes you know it's good it's good for them and i think that we we at the beginning we were probably too subtle thinking we don't want to preach to people you know we don't want to keep hammering on with this but now we do and um yeah. yeah every opportunity we get you know pretty much will you know make sure that people have considered it before they before they check out hey real quick if you're enjoying the show please leave us a review on itunes let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of now let's get back to the interview mm. now let's talk about the the course so when at what point did you recognize or realize that this was an important thing to add into to the business I think it came through customer service. I think they came, so we, we discovered people asking for help with introductions. That um, you we would get messages like, I put the harness on my cat, but they don't like it. So, you know, what do I do now? Um, and, and so we would be providing advice around that. We built blog posts with kind of um, a, a sort of a process that we would suggest for an introduction. Also, around this time, we kind of realized that we ne- needed to like level up our skills to be able to provide this advice. So I went off and um, did a course in uh, feline behavior. My original degree was in biology, so it was a kind of like additional uh, feline behavior qualification so that we weren't just... I mean, we developed a lot of on-the-job experience, but you know, we also wanted that to be built on a bedrock of um, a very rigorous scientific principles. Um, and so, yeah, we, we started offering this customer advice, but we realized we were doing it like a for, only for the customers who would reach out mm. in customer service. They would get, an, I think, an amazing experience where, you know, email sometimes for weeks on end with advice and feedback and mm. look at pictures or videos. But I guess we kind of felt like it was yeah. a shame that not everyone could have that because uh, level of service. You know that for every person that gets in touch and wants to, you know, be in touch with customer service and gets that service, there's probably three or four that haven't bothered and, and mm-hmm. that sort of didn't feel like they could ask and and haven't had a good service. And you sort of think, well, it would be great to enrich those customers as, as much as the ones that reach out. We also were doing it piecemeal, which is not very effective, not very efficient in that you're delivering a small piece of information here and a small piece of information here, but they didn't necessarily tie up. You're fighting fires as opposed to creating, you know, a fire break. You know, you sort of like, what you want to do is is start again and sort of go right from the beginning. If you start well, you know, you'll, you'll have a really good progression through this. So we wanted to get something that was a bit more of a holistic approach right from the beginning right through to the end to tie up all these little nuggets of information small videos and bits of information that we put together in charts and stuff and we thought well let's let's put it all together in in, in one strong course mm. it, was it something that was um easy to put together given your experience it's kind of needed some place to put it down or like what was the process behind creating a or maybe first like how large is this course and like talk to us about like with the process behind creating it it was, it was quite a lot of work, but it felt great to do because yeah. it was like, like you say, just getting it down formally for the first mm. time. It's quite a detailed course. It has six modules and we actually we debated a lot about. So it includes 
two um, skills that actually are not directly related to harness training, which is recall training your cat and then getting them happy in like a safe space, like a carrier or a backpack before you even start harness training, uh, which I, I know is like kind of frustrating because you want to get on with the harness training, but it does mean by the time people, that they can interlace the training and do it all at the same time. And it means that by the time we're kind of sending our graduates out the you know across the threshold out on their first trip outside that they are they've got all of the like the range of skills they'll need to have a sort of rewarding and safe and and fun experience so we've kind of um it's really fundamental um training um and we built it through kind of a convergence of two things one was the sort of um the animal behavior processes of like counter conditioning and desensitization to the harness so that they uh, build your cat will build positive associations with the harness and isn't afraid of it and then we also pulled in basically every question we ever got in customer service so that we were actually targeting you know the real world questions that Mm. wouldn't otherwise get covered so uh, we kind of it's a bit of a pincer maneuver (laughs) yeah and i think i think the, the main thing it is quite a long course and there's quite a lot of content in it because it moves quite slowly, mm. which is the way that you you have to move when you're training a, any animal. It's small increments. If you rush it, you kind of you go too fast and, and you miss it, mm. and then then they fall off the off the wayside. So I think it, it it's a very it's a very small tight detail mm. all the way through, uh, which makes it quite a heavy course. But it but it's um, yeah. There's yeah. lots lots in it, but it's not difficult if you know what I mean. So yeah. we just need to we kept working on it and working on it and making it more and more detailed. I think um, it just it really grew out of our experiences in in customer service that we 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 were aware that there are principles that if you apply them to this question, will give you the right answer. So if you learn how to read a cat's body language, you'll know when they're happy and when they're not. So you'll know how your training is going. And we were doing this behind the scenes, and then like we were doing the math and then delivering the answer to the customer. And what the course does is let the customer do the math themselves. So they learn to read their own cat. Mm. So they know how to proceed. So it kind of, um, yeah, it like teaches them to fish, I guess. is the Yeah. Analogy. I think, I think one of the, the big questions for anyone that is looking at creating a digital content, like a course, for example, is like, what should I put in there? And I think you touched on a really important um, gold mine for you is if you have a business already, you have some way to, find out what are the questions everyone's asking and what kind of maybe frequency of questions or important questions people are asking. It it sounds like a lot of the course is built around that. This is answering the questions that you saw often. Totally. I, I mean, that was essentially how the framework of the course is built. And then the coloring in inside is just the, the mm. kind of the behavioral stuff. Mm. But yeah, because, because we'd spent by that point, like, two, three years answering those questions, it was really helpful. We had a good grasp on what people, where people got confused and where they, uh, like, where people drop off in mm. training as well. Like the There are sticking points, isn't there? Where yeah. You, some, some people can't get past a certain point and they're going great until they get to this point. Go, I just can't, can't get past this point. They just, they've, or, or, or they'll suddenly, the cat will suddenly not want to, mm. to be in their harness anymore. You go, well, it, it it, it was doing fine. Why did it suddenly stop? Yeah. And there's usually a really good reason for that. And it's quite simple and you work backwards and you can find it, but we're just getting that framework, you know, getting that timeline. I mean, the other thing is that our course can't, because cats like humans are, you know, they have personalities and they're unique and they have their own life experiences. So we, you know, there are still questions that are not covered um, that are specific to one cat's personal experience. So then we kind of put draw on um, like community meeting places, whether it's our forum or private Facebook group, so that people can share their experiences of how they trained their three-legged cat with somebody else who's mm. in that same situation. And so there's also our community teaching each other, which is, is a lovely thing to yeah, see. Yeah, with the course, is it are they are these mostly existing customers that are buying, or are there non you know existing customers that bought the harness uh, buying it as well? What's been really lovely to see is that uh, a lot of people buying both at the same time, which is, mm. you know, it's kind of the ideal and it, it definitely sets the odds mm. in their favour for that, like absolute perfect journey with the harness. Um, because it's a new course that we've introduced after the harness, the harness mm. has been self on self for a few years. 
before the course. We are getting previous customers that have bought the harness and and then have come back and bought the course. Mm. And we've had really good feedback from them um, that it's it's really improved their experience with the product, mm. um, which is great. So you know that's that's been been lovely. I mean, going forward, I guess in time, uh, hoping that people buy it at the same time. But mm. yeah, I'm sure there'll be a certain amount of previous customers that will buy. Yeah. And what was the process for for marketing a course like like this? Because it is a pre- it is you know pr- pretty niche, right? Where where customers maybe could all benefit from it, but might not be necessarily seeking it out. So, what's your process for building awareness and, and marketing a, a course? That's kind of work in progress. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to be totally all, honest, our um, our marketing manager built a really strong uh, influencer campaign. So there are. You, is how most of our community are finding um like the idea or getting the idea of walking with their cats is they're seeing other people doing it and thinking i'd love to try that with my cat and so we uh teamed up with we informally call i don't think they know they're called this but we 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 rallied the friends of superkit which are the influencers that have been like instrumental to our company for, for a very long time who super loyal um, contributors and we have a great relationship with them so we kind of sent the bat signal out to the friends of Superkit and um, they they posted content around the launch and they were really excited to do so too because their Instagram DMs for example are just full of people they were kind of in the same situation we were people would be reaching out all the time asking them for advice in an Instagram DM they were not capable of delivering the nuance and detail that they wanted to to give their community the right level of introduction and so for them to be able to send their their community somewhere where they could trust that they were going to get um really sort of reputable advice was was great for them and obviously worked for us so so that was really successful and it's it's been really quite organic Mm. launch to the product which has been nice to see Mm. Yeah, when I talk a little bit more about marketing, maybe specifically around the the, um, the 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 harness and collar products themselves, and one thing you had mentioned to us was that um, the Facebook and Instagram visual marketing, you would imagine that a product like this would would do very well, and it was almost it was actually too engaging. The content you're putting out there was too engaging. Tell us more about why this was an issue. Start. I would say our business started on Instagram. So when we finally were at a point where we were, you know, big enough, and we were still at the kitchen table, but we started to think about paid um, pay-per-click marketing, advertising. It kind of was natural that the first thing we would try was Facebook and Instagram, and that was the start of a really long road of. I mean, we learned a lot, but to sort of cut a long story short, we were never able to reliably achieve like profitability with our pay-per-click on Instagram and Facebook. We didn't run it ourselves for two years and we then got an agency to run it. They did a good job, yeah. but, and then we took it back and we tried again. And ultimately the problem that we continually ran into was that our product is super niche, super, super niche. And, um, but conversely, cats uh, and all of our imagery are clickbait. So we would get a lot of interest and engagement on our ads, but translating that into sales, mm. actually, you know, finding the people that we needed to be speaking to, we just Within weren't able group. to achieve. No. Um, and we, it, we we couldn't, we were like, it, it just didn't feel right. We kept going back to it and back to it. And I mean, now I feel like we've kind of, we've, we've made our peace with mm. it. We really did bottom it out. Um but, but yeah, it was a strange issue to have. Yeah, we had to send it out, didn't we, to, to realise that we weren't doing something wrong. We kind of, we kept thinking, surely we're doing something wrong here. And we sent it, and the, and the, the company that we we spoke to, they, they kind of, they were really buzzed to be to be doing this. They're like, great, you mean pictures of cats? That's, everybody loves pictures of cats. You know, we've got lots of great material. Who doesn't want to be served that sort of material? And I think they thought it was going to be much easier uh, than it was and they also couldn't understand why they weren't getting the results that they thought they were going to do and and between us when we started analyzing after about six months of doing it with them we analyzed all the all the results and we kind of got to the conclusion that we were lost in a sea of cat pictures mm. you know there was so this there's, there's so much um uh, so much material out there that finding us in it is really tricky 
And we've had a different, a total, like a bit of a different approach, really, to doing that. And then, then we brought it back again. We tried it again, really, really worked on the funnel, really, you know, had a great plan. And we were, we were confident. We were sure we nailed it by this point. And, um, and that didn't work either. I mean, to be entirely clear, off, we did end up developing a, a fully paperclip funnel that, that worked. <laughs> it did find <laughs> our people yeah. and they did buy but the cost of acquisition was was prohibitively yeah. expensive, and so you kind of at that point we kind of tried it every which way, and um, and yeah, we put it to bed. I mean, mm. never say never, and then there might be times where we are lured back again in future. But then conversely, surprisingly, like Google Shopping does really well for us. Mm. So <laughs> it, it isn't how I would have predicted, but you kind of have to go with the numbers. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think this is an important point about, especially when you're like a bootstrapper, much smaller beginning startup, is that um, engagement doesn't really doesn't really is not really the right, right metric to, to focus on, right? That yes, you can get a bunch of you know cheap and highly engaged people to come, but a lot of them are just here for the content itself and not not actually, you know, ready or looking to buy, which is why, you know, probably why Google Shopping, right, worked out for you, especially when it's a niche product, people probably have a specific problem they're trying to solve. So tell us more about that. Once you have recognized that, that yes, in, you were getting lots of engagement on a platform, but not converting into sales, what was your approach to, to, to um, launching campaigns on Google Shopping? Well, that we actually have always run in parallel. So fortunately, because otherwise we might have um, like been more despairing of paperclip, but we kind of knew there were there were channels that did work for us. So yeah, we uh, we run uh, shopping campaigns in our kind of five key territories, and and all of those have worked really nicely for us. We also do some um, you know more text based ads, but far and away the shopping campaigns are, are the most effective, and we have kind of um, separate feeds set up for each of them. Um, and that, they've been really instrumental to our business. And I think, you know, like you say, somebody that goes to Google and searches in like our very specific search terms has already been on a lot of the journey before. And we know from looking at our kind of attribution uh, pathways, they've touched us on social. And, you know, like the paperclick is not the, the whole story but it is that final hurdle that brings them to our store so they've gone and researched collars or harnesses and and then they're finally coming to us so so yeah that's worked really nicely and originally I think when we started on Google Shopping I may be wrong but we certainly weren't aware of um, much like Google AI around it so we were like really manually managing those campaigns but about 18 months ago um, the uh, kind of smart shopping campaigns uh, outperformed our, uh, you know, painstakingly manually mm. uh, kind of gardened ones. And so we've, we've kind of switched everything on to um, like smart campaigns, which is, you know, a whole whole job off our backs. I mean, that's made me feel a little bit squiggly about um, <laughs> the rise of the machines, but I'm prepared to, to leave that be for the time being. And, and, and the, the results speak for themselves. They, yeah. they do well. I think that you're right that in the, in the, it isn't everything. Like the, using the AI and you know do, doing the campaigns very manually, it rides on the back of a lot of organic traffic. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the work we do, you know, we have organic traffic and people find us that way. You know, the Google ad is the, is the way that gets somebody over the line to buy, mm-hmm. not necessarily the way that you know it isn't the thing that brings them in in the first place. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it shares a lot of that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's part of a part of the ecosystem. Yeah. Makes sense. So superkit.co is the website. And we've talked a lot about saying no to more things and how that's had such a big impact on on the the focus and the, the success of the business in the direction that you want. Uh, so tell us more about maybe something that that is the most exciting thing that you and your team have said yes to that that maybe you can share publicly. I don't want to sort of bang on about the courses, but for me, that's, that's felt like the, the great kind of like new seam of exciting stuff that we've unlocked and that we're, you know, it, it, the early feedback is positive enough for us to mm. kind of double down and, and get really excited about that. Just because our, like, you know, our founding ethos was like helping out humans and their cats. And I think we've realized that you can go so far with products, but actually there's like this whole world of 
of training mm. to be unlocked and being able to do that through through Shopify and kind of integrate both together has been been really exciting. Mm. So I, you know, that's that's what we're buzzed about at the moment is kind of thinking about what other areas we can help people in. Um, yeah, and through that digital medium as well. I mean, a digital product that isn't a physical product, I think, is very exciting for us as well because mm. it's you know it's it's um, it has its advantages and and like you say, you can deliver loads of content in that way and and help. You yeah. know. I think it's um, it's that's something that's really exciting, and I think you know it, it, it ties in with us not wanting to make things for making things' sake. You know, we keep creating physical products only if people want them and need them, and if you can make a digital product that really helps as well. I mean, it kind of kind of ticks a lot of boxes for us. Mm. It also, I think, on just a personal level, is reminding us of like the free sun of excitement of the early days of physical product and super kit in that you know we produced our course ourselves and uh so it's like we're kind of back to the kitchen table and now yeah. we're thinking you know i really enjoy that process of strategy like okay we've done something in the kitchen table how do we scale that how do we make it like a you know repeatable um you know do we bring people in who do we mm. partner with so we're getting to have all those fun conversations again which feels like yeah. a kind of like little second honeymoon yeah, yeah it's nice <laughs> Awesome. Exciting stuff. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and advice, Lately and Kevin. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.